Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Sometimes I coach my clients on what I'm going to call radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is a concept that has been really important um, just in my personal life. And it essentially means that you accept what life gives you. And the radical part is that you do it even if life gives you stuff that seems unacceptable. It's not about rolling over and letting things happen to you, but it is about accepting the cards that you've been dealt. And it can be really important um, in dog training to appreciate the cards you've been dealt, to accept the dog in front of you. And so today I'm gonna talk about when you might make the choice to simply radically accept your dog's behavior. And when you might make the choice to modify that behavior instead. So I'm going to call this letting go of the dog's behavior or training the dog's behavior because those actually are your two only options for happiness. You either radically accept what you've got in front of you or you change it. Those are the only two options and that's true for dog training and everything else. So for me, With my dog's quality of life, I don't let things go that affect their quality of life. So I will work really hard on anything that blocks them from getting their needs met. So for instance, if they don't have a recall, I'm going to work my butt off on them having a recall so that I can off-leash hike them as much as I want. That's something that I know from the get-go. So I work a lot on the recall. The training hours that are spent on the recall probably outweigh the rest of my training put together. Um, For my dog's, you know, first chunk of years in their life. And once the behavior is really beautifully established, then I just think about strategically reinforcing it rather than actively training it. But it never goes away because it's so important to me. I will always dedicate the time. Anything that maybe doesn't affect their quality of life, um, but just makes my life a little bit harder, I might be more likely to let go of. So a good example would be, you know, Iggy's separation anxiety. She had some, I would call it mild, honestly, separation anxiety because she was not committing self-harm, but she was unacceptably anxious when left by herself for the first good half of her life, honestly. And I let it go because it wasn't a problem for us. It was a minor inconvenience for me. I made sure that I pretty much took her everywhere or left her with people. And when it became something that I had to address was when we moved away from Colorado and I moved away from the you know support system, the network of friends and family that could take care of Iggy for me um, at a moment's notice. 
And then suddenly we moved to a new place. I didn't know anyone. My family wasn't here. And suddenly separation anxiety was a real problem for our life. And that's when I dug in my heels and worked it out. I still don't leave her alone for long periods of time, but I do leave her alone um, if I need to for a few hours here and there, and it's not a big deal. So I'm happy that I dug in and handled that, although it was anxiety producing for me to tackle it because it's something that I don't have a long history of helping people with. I typically refer separation anxiety cases out. So I did that for myself. I consulted another professional who is an expert in, in that field and I'm really happy that I did. And maybe more of that on a future episode if you guys are interested, but I could let it go and I could accept it until I couldn't. And then I handled it. And that's what I want you to encourage I want to encourage you to do. So here's some here's some deciding factors on, you know, whether we whether you might let go or train the thing in front of you. I would say if like I said, if it's a quality of life matter, don't let it go. Don't accept that your dog can't go on off leash walks or at least a long line in a harness. Don't accept that your dog can't have enrichment activities, maybe because of uh, resource guarding issues. You know, don't accept those things. Dig in, do the work, get, get as far as you can. Most things can be mostly resolved. But let's say you're too far into the woods. My favorite quote right now is you can't, um, d- is don't walk 10 miles into a forest and expect to get out in five. Um, that's a, uh, something I heard Kristen Bell say who she heard from her therapist. So um, it's perfect for dog training. If you have allowed your dog to not have any semblance of a start line stay for the past five years of its career, understand that it might take you another five years to get that start line stay. So if you're that far into the woods, if you're five years into the woods on something like that, you got to decide if you want to walk the five years out because likely it is actually going to take that long. Um, And I think you're owed a fast process. So that's me giving you the fastest process possible. But if you have done that much damage for that long, it could take as long to get you out. So consider how far into the woods am I and should I just let this go? It's fair to do that. Time commitment is also something to consider. If this is going to take you, you know, several training sessions a day for weeks or months and you simply don't have the time to do it then maybe you let it go there are a lot of behavior problems that require a commitment like that and if you just can't spare the time then then decide if you can let it go um how much time your dog has left always something to consider i usually don't work super super hard fixing any kind of behavior problems that exist in older dogs. What I do instead is I say, you know, and let me be clear, if it's a new behavior problem in an older dog, it's a health thing. It is about health. It is not about behavior. And so you've got to dig in and figure out what's going on health-wise with your dog, and that's not something you should let go. But let's say it's something the dog has done since they were two years old and they are now 11 years old. I would say let it go, man. Your dog, realistically, if you're lucky, has three or four years left, if you're lucky. 
are you going to spend that time fighting a battle that you've let go for so long until now? I'm going to say don't. I'm going to say let it be. Um, and I'm going to say practice radical acceptance and love that your dog has raided the trash since it was age two and is now raiding the trash at age 11. Get some get some locks for your cabinets. That's what I did. <laughs> Just do that instead. Skills. Skills are important to consider. Do you have the skill to fix this yourself or are you going to have to pay a professional? Like I had to consult or chose to consult a professional for IG separation anxiety. Um, that's, you know, that was not cheap. I wanted the best, so I paid for the best. And you have to decide, do I have the financial um, support that I can pay to get myself out of this? Or do I have the skills myself? Because if you don't have the skills yourself and you do need help, your best bet is to just spend the money and get the help. You guys, you're listening to someone who works with behavior problems professionally. I will always pay a colleague if I feel stuck. It is the best move that you can make. I'm lucky that I've got some great colleagues that I can just talk to for free. And we do that back and forth. But sometimes you need to whip out the big guns. And that's what I needed to do for IG separation anxiety. And that's what I did. And I'm happy that I did. So decide, you know, do I have the skills for this? And if not, do I know the professional that does and can I consult the professional? And if you're sitting here going, woe is me, I live in the middle of nowhere and no one can help me, not true. Not an excuse anymore because it's called the internet. I didn't consult with someone locally for IG. I consulted with someone online and we spoke on the phone and via email. And for most problems, that's an option now. For most problems. I don't work with all problems online. So I sometimes get emails about behavior problems that I don't take in my format. And I try to refer people out. Just because I don't take it doesn't mean nobody does. So keep looking. Um, and so these are all really important things to think about. And then the happy medium here is management. If you can't fully accept it, but you don't have the time or the skills um, to commit to it, to, to fixing it, then figure out a management plan that's gonna work, that's not gonna reduce anybody's quality of life too much. So sometimes that's the case with um, kind of intra-household dog aggression. If you've got two dogs that are fighting, sometimes that can be resolved and sometimes it can't. And if it can't, it's not really something you can accept, but it is something you can manage or you can find somebody, you know, you can find one of the dogs another place to live. That's, that's not a bad option sometimes in those cases, but sometimes it's also simply not an option. Um, for me, when I was living that scenario, it wasn't an option for me and but management was and so we managed um we managed really tightly iggy had conflict with leslie's older bitch tundra um and it was severe enough conflict that they would fight if they were if there was not a barrier between them period no triggers necessary other than the presence of the other um in this case a lot of these factors were playing in i didn't want to try to modify it because of Tundra's age. 
So I mentioned that, how much time do you have left piece? When they started their big bad conflict, Tundra was 14 or 15 years of age. And so I knew, you know, this dog just, even if nothing's wrong with her, her organically cannot last that much longer. She held on till 17 just to make Iggy's life hard. But, um, but you know, three years of strict management was the best choice for everybody involved because of the fact that I, A, didn't see it resolving to a point where I would feel safe with them together anyway. And B, you know, we worked hard to make sure nobody's quality of life was hugely affected by the management. And, you know, C, it just came down to the fact that we had walked into the woods about a good year of them deciding they hated each other which they decided the second they met. So it wasn't like um, we had much of a chance. And did we even have enough time to walk back out of the woods? Not, not necessarily with Tundra's age. So what I usually consult um, with my clients is that if one of your dogs is ancient and the other dog wants to kill it, your only responsibility is to keep the ancient dog safe until they die. Rather than you know, trying to put a super old dog through a behavior modification protocol, because even if you are a skilled, highly positive reinforcement based trainer, behavior modification is hard on everyone involved. It's not easy for anyone. That's why we need to follow guidelines like the humane hierarchy to try to make sure that we are doing best by our learners, because it's hard for everyone. If you ever think about, you know, if you ever tried to change a habit, in yourself, that's you trying to modify your own behavior or build a new habit. Was it fun? No. And it wasn't fun even with nobody shocking you um, or jerking you on a prong collar to try to get it done. It still wasn't fun. So understand that it's not really fun for anyone. And so if management is a tool that you can use without reducing everybody's quality of life too much, it might be your best option. It's kind of the nice, happy medium. So I hope you guys that in 2020, in the new year, you don't feel so overwhelmed with, I have to fix this, 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 this. And instead you feel like, okay, I can practice radical acceptance about some of these things. And then these other things I'm going to dig in. I'm going to consult a professional if I need to, and I'm going to handle it. And kind of, you know, one, one last thing is I want you to always consider is this actually a problem for me or is this a problem socially? So let's say your dog uh, likes to stand on your kitchen table and look outside and it doesn't really bother you, but you had somebody over and they were appalled that your dog was standing on the kitchen table and looking outside and now you feel obligated to train that out. Well, if that person doesn't live with you and it's not actually up to them and it is fine with you, then I would encourage you to let it go. Um, you know, if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. If the dog comes up to you and puts its feet in your lap while you're eating dinner and licks your face and that doesn't bother you, then it's not a problem. But if that does bother you, train them to do something else instead. It's really important for us to not, to, so rather than you looking at these powers that be and guidelines that are kind of loose but exist of what dogs quote unquote should act like, 
think about what do I want my dogs to act like and what am I okay with and what am I not okay with? And it is all right for you to make those decisions on your own. Okay, time for some Patreon questions. This one comes from Aaron Hensley and I love it so much that I might make it a full episode, but let's talk about it um, a little bit here. Aaron writes, I would love to hear your thoughts on that all too mystical concept of drive. How do you define it? How do you operationalize it? And how much is really necessary for us to be happy in this world of extreme drive expression and the shunning and shaming of seemingly anything less than military grade? In other words, where's the love for the average dog? Once again, probably look for this as a full episode, um, maybe even with some guest speakers, because I think we could really dive into this. But essentially, Aaron, I think what we talk about when we talk about drive is ease of motivation. So if the dog is quote unquote high drive, he is easily motivated for our needs. Now, we could certainly pare that down and say, you know, but my racing bred whippet has high drive, but maybe not for my purposes. So then we can kind of say, well, maybe he has high prey drive, but not um, super high food drive or, you know, whatever. I don't think these labels are super helpful for us. I think what's important, um, kind of like you mentioned, is to seek out dogs that fit for us in our lives. So I want high ease of motivation for sure. Um, basically I want the dog to like food and I want the dog to like toys, but I am not averse to building those interests in my dogs. I can build some toy drive. I can build some food drive. That's all fine with me. Um, I think what people want, what you call military grade too often is a dog that they don't have to do any work to get the dog to be easily motivated. I, they want the dog coming out coming out of the box, tugging, um, ready to throw its entire heart and soul into anything that they do without any work on the human's part. And I think that's where we get into trouble. There's nothing wrong with having to do a little bit of building for the drives that are necessary for your work, like food or toy drive. Um, and I'm not averse to that. So that's where the love for the average dog comes in. Um, is that it's important for us to embrace the dogs in our lives and just kind of on the earth that are average and maybe have an average interest in food and an average interest in toys. And then we can build their interest in those things as far as our needs are concerned. Those dogs are gonna have an easier time in life because they don't care as much about stuff. When you have high drive, you also have just high concerns in general think about your kind of high power type a professional entrepreneur type person versus your you know person who is happy to go to their nine to five monday through friday until they hit retirement and then go on nice vacations you have different levels of mental intensity there and you are probably going to be faced with different levels of mental struggle as well and i think it's important to think of that when it comes to dogs and i think for most dog sport competitors the average pet dog or maybe just a little upgrade from that is best for them rather than these i like your phrase military grade dogs but aaron you know thanks for that question and i hope that um, that answers a little bit of your 
ponderings, and I may return to this, like I said, for a full episode. So thank you so much. Next one is a good piggyback off of that question. Alicia Healy says, I'm curious what you think about the concept of a dog finding inherent value in dog agility. I sometimes hear people say that a dog does agility just because he loves it so much. I don't doubt that many dogs truly love it, but if a dog loves agility more than other reinforcement, like toys or food, couldn't that be problematic? If they care about agility more than their reward, what is keeping them from repeating a favorite obstacle repeatedly, making up their own course, or refusing to exit the ring? Lisa, you're 100% right in everything that you just said. It is highly problematic if the dog decides agility is better than your reinforcers. And I actually do have a planned episode on this. Um where I'm going to dive into the nitty gritty because it's a huge problem that I see all the time. The second that the dog decides the equipment is better than anything that you have is the second that you shot yourself in the foot. It is a bad moment. You do not want to have that moment. And there are easy ways to stay out of that imprisonment. Unfortunately, people dig their own grave in this situation because they maybe went from a dog that wasn't super hot on agility to a dog that is obsessed with it and that they find that so reinforcing that they just kind of encourage that path until they're in trouble and until it's a problem for them. I personally don't think that there is inherent value to dogs in doing dog agility other than working with the human and getting the reinforcers. My dogs love agility, but if they never did it again, they'd still have perfectly wonderful lives, which is important to me. And that's about their life outside of agility for sure. But it's also about the fact that they want to work with me for my stuff more than they want a specific kind of job. That's easier with some dogs than others. It's not hard uh, to convince Iggy to do whatever the work is as long as there's food involved. Felix really starting to show a tendency to want to seek out the equipment, even if I ask him to do other things. So we are working through that and working on making sure that my reinforcers stay more valuable than the equipment with him. But like I said, a full episode is actually on the schedule about this. So thanks for asking the question and more to come. Last one for this episode, Nisa says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the tendency of the dog sport community to excuse behavior because that's what a high drive dog is like. It sometimes feels like people wear their ability to live with a dog they've taught zero indoor skills as a badge of honor, which is a bizarre concept. I agree, I'm all about the sexy life skills. I want dogs to be able to go shopping with me one second um, and then go do dog agility at full speed the next. I really value both and value house skills. Um, Kind of like when I was answering Erin about, you know, what is drive? I think... You know, people get dogs with military grade drive and military grade, you know, get up and go and want to do stuff. And then they stick them in a house and they take them to agility class maybe twice a week and then do a trial on the weekend. And the dog has no other activity and nothing else to do. And then we are talking about a dog that is simply pent, simply does not have its needs met. And that's not about training. That's about husbandry. That's about taking better care of the animals that we decide to live with. But sometimes it is about training. And I actually think the higher the drive, if we're going to operationalize that for a second, the more they care about reinforcers, the more the ease of motiva- motivation, then the easier they are should they should be to train technically, which means that you 
could train them those house skills pretty easily. We just, what we call house skills are usually just the dog being bored and doing nothing, and that's what those dogs are really bad at. You can, however, channel reinforcement appropriately so that the dog isn't bored, isn't necessarily doing nothing, is working to get reinforcement, but is doing what you want them to do in your house. Um, and so my tendency, is, or my, my thoughts on that tendency are just that everybody does what works for them. And if, if one person is perfectly fine with their house of craziness and their dog not having life skills, as long as they're taking care of that dog appropriately, then I don't care, but it's not for me. And that's my kind of quick answer on that. Thanks you guys for all of your questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron. 